We're studying chapter 3 of Tanya tonight. Thank God in our circle we've been keeping a pace. Right. We decided in the beginning that we're going to go. We want to get through the Tanya and we want to do it in a balanced way. And the balance that we chose is that we get together once a week and instead of delving very, very deeply when we'll never get out of it, and instead of reading it cursory in a way that we'll never get into it, we decide to scratch the surface, examine the chapter, one chapter a week, draw the lessons, get the structure, and appreciate what it is that the Alter Rebbe, the great master, leader, founder of Chabad, wants to communicate to us. And last week, in chapter 2, we discussed the essence of the Jewish divine soul. We described it as a chilek elokam imal mamash, a part of God, literally a piece of God in you. We talked about the meaning of that, the significance of it, and how really in every single Jew, no matter your rank or grade, you could be Moshe Rabbeinu, you could be a garbage collector. What unites us is the fact that we have the peace of God in us. And all the differences between Jewish people only exist because of the way that the, that the Jewish communal body, communal organism developed. Just like pregnancy, all begins with one point, one substance, one fluid, and in the mother's womb it's developed into a baby with many, many different aspects, angles, and parts. But at the, at the end, they can all be traced back to the core. And so in that sense, every Jew can be traced back to the core, which is the piece of Please God inside him. Please. A piece of God inside him. And uh, yet all the differences can exist. But here's the problem, and the problem we're going to seek to address tonight. A soul, raw godliness, is infinity. In order to have relationship, any relationship of any kind at any level, what we need is a couple of things. We need each entity to have its own space. We need two entities, or a minimum, maybe more, but at least two entities to create shared space. And we need that in the shared space, each should be able to maintain their individuality. Otherwise, it will never work. Infinity has the capacity for none of the above. It can't give space for another. It encompasses everything. It surely can't share a space and definitely won't allow for any individuality to be maintained. And so in that way, infinity can't relate. Were the soul to be simply raw godliness and that's it, there would be no way to function, to relate with God, its source, to relate with other souls, other beings. And as we said last week, chapters 2, 3, and 4 basically give us the full picture. Chapter 2 is the essence of the soul. Chapter 3 gives us the body, what I would call the body or the personality, character, so many adjectives we could use, the makeup of the soul. And basically their idea is what allows it to communicate with other things. Next week we'll talk about actual expression of the soul, when the soul speaks, when the soul relates. Now we're talking about capability, just the capability to relate. And Hasidus calls these, these capabilities, Kabbalah calls them sfirot. You've heard this terminology before if you've even minimally uh, had access to Kabbalah, the sfirot, the ten basic elements that make up all of Hashem's interaction with the world the ten basic elements that make up the human psyche. They're called the sfirot. They're also in Hasidus, when it's distilled, it's also called kochot. Kochot means powers or faculties, tools, I like to call them. Because what these tools do is they reduce, they reduce the soul into a context where other souls or other beings can reason with it and give it perspective. See, if I came and I said, look, uh, Today I want to get a, uh, an orange cup for the class. It's got to be orange. And you go, why orange? It doesn't matter. It's just orange. It's all I want. There's zero room for any, anybody else to reason or any other person's perspective. If I want orange and I'm set on it, that's the physical, um, physical example for infinity. Of course, it's not infinity. But the idea is that I don't leave room for any other being. If I could reduce my infinity into a context and say, you know what orange reminds me of? It gives me great feelings of the tangerines that I used to see growing up in my house on the counter. 
And so when I see orange, it brings relaxation. And I'm less nervous in communicating the ideas that I want to communicate. Okay, that's a perspective now. It may sound ridiculous, but it's a perspective. I've reduced my infinity into a context. From within that context, you can now appreciate and say, look, I got it, okay? We don't have any orange cups, but I can bring you an orange plate. We'll do the job, right? For the cups, we'll keep it clear. For the plates, we'll do orange, and then the ideas can be shared, and we can work on something. That's a very, very uh, low example, but it brings out the concept that in order to channel, funnel down anything that's infinite, it always needs tools. And these tools are, what are the subject matter of chapter three, to define what are the tools that a soul has to allow it to begin at any level a relationship with Hashem, a relationship with other human beings. You know, one of the most beautiful, for me, one of the most beautiful concepts, phenomenons in human life is the difference between experience and communication. We can experience things that can take hours to communicate. The basic human function and process that we live through on a daily basis, forget, forget a daily basis, on an hourly basis, on a minutely basis, can be unpacked in, in so much more time. It's the difference between movies and books, right? A book, 500 pages, could take you two weeks to read, and a movie can capture everything in two hours because it, it's, it's the ability to experience. It's also the difference between sight and audio, but it's, it, in, the, in the larger context, it's experience versus communication. And the greatest way to communicate an idea to the best of our ability is to communicate an experience. That's the, that's the, that's the synthesis there. In other words, if I want you to experience something, I need to tell you about it, I will not, it, I, I would do much better to give you the form of an experience versus the raw abstract idea. Eat Rabbi, your mother will be upset. I'll eat afterwards, don't worry. In other words, let me just, 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 just to give an example, okay? I could say an idea of a loan needs to be paid back. Or I can, filter it and say, if Gil were to lend Joseph $100, he needs to pay it back. Right there, I've, I've brought it down, even on a, very, on a very minimal level, to an experience versus an abstract idea, we connect with it more. And that's the way it is in all of, in, in all of, in all of writing. The best writers are the ones that can bring us into the experience because they, they give us the best glimmer into what it is they're trying to communicate. And the Alter Rebbe, in chapter three does exactly that. In wanting to describe how the soul functions, how these tools operate, he chooses to walk us through an experience. And by walking us through an experience, he gives us a window into how it is that the soul works. So that's the, uh, that's the intro there. So what is, what is that? So what is the experience? And, and, and we're gonna talk about what the experience that the Alter Rebbe walks us through. But before that, so we have perspective, I want to just elaborate a little bit on uh, the 10 tools, the 10 spherot that the Alter Rebbe addresses. Without getting into the historical context, the intellectual context, there's so much. This is why we talk about it's difficult to condense, but we're going to do our best as we always do. Many people are puzzled with the fact that there are only 10 spherot. Why are there 10? Why, why, why 10? Human beings produce millions of types of thoughts, feelings, actions, experiences, phenomena, events, concepts. Really, there are millions if we would trace our life. But the way Kabbalah understands it is that everything is rooted, ultimately, in 10 basic traits. So everything in the human experience, everything in the human condition 
every part in the godly condition, in fact, the way Hashem relates to the world, could be understood in the context of ten basic elemental tools. And these are further divided into two subcategories. Intellectual and emotional. We have intellectual experiences and passionate emotional responses. Three intellectual stages. These are called Chochmah, Bina, Dat. Familiar words to Chabadniks because that's what Chabad stands for. Chochmah, Bina, Dat. Literally translated as wisdom, understanding, knowledge, but these are poor words. In English, we don't have great words to capture the essence of what it is that Chochmah communicates, Bina communicates, Dat communicates. Some of the good words are, for Chochmah, we would call it conception or cognition is what Rabbi Miller calls it in his Tanya. Bina would be comprehension or recognition and Dat would be application, connection. And we'll talk about these each in detail. But that's the basic three stages of intellect, intellectual ideas. And then experiential, emotional ideas are categorized into seven, the, the remaining seven sfirot, chesed, gvura, tiferet. We've heard these terms in sfirat ha'omer. When we count the omer, we mention them. In Kabbalistic works, they're literally all over the place. Attraction, rejection, harmony, endurance, and, and, and the other three um, that basically are the makeup of all emotional experience of the human condition. Three are emotional. Three intellectual, seven emotional. Three intellectual, seven emotional. We're not going to get into the details of those, uh, all of them tonight. The Alter Rebbe will open them up in later chapters. So tonight, we're going to focus on first, the general difference between intellectual and emotional capacities of a human being. And then we're going to delve into the intellectual process. Okay, so, that, so that's going to be our goal. That's going to be our goal tonight. I know every week I mention other chapters, right? It's like a sequel. Every, you got to come back. And this is really in the, in, in the late 30s and early 40s, the chapters that we're talking about, which open up really the discussions on the emotional responses of the human, of the human being. 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, all full of it. We got a few weeks ago. We got a couple of weeks for that. That's when we bring our wives, right? Yeah. <laughs> the emotional beings. Well, we won't tell them. So, I, I want to first address the difference between the intellectual and the emotional. The mind and the heart. And I'm going to be using a couple of different frameworks just because I want to give you the maximum that I can. Hasidus has so many ways and so many metaphors to describe the differences between intellectual and emotional capacities of a human. So we're going to try to get through a couple and then let you sit with the ideas and process it in the ways that uh, each of us process things. Which is another beauty of the intellectual process is that we all process it differently. But on a basic level, when we talk about Seichel Umidot, is the Hebrew words for it, intellect and emotion, the two English words that come to mind are objectivity and subjectivity. You see, if I analyze a given situation in life just with my brain, and I really want to get down to it, and really want to understand the underpinnings, if it's a legal case, let's say, okay, we're analyzing a legal case from the 1900s, we have all the documents in front of us, and we're going to figure out who's right. Is it the guy who's battling the state, or is it the state who owes who money, how much money is involved, where is the settlement going to happen, is it going to happen, are we going to have to go to a higher court, and we're really, really... We're going we're gonna to really unpack this and we're going to really dig into it and we're going to really understand it. No matter which way the discussion leads us to, I as the studier, as a student, will never be perturbed. I'll never be bothered. If it comes out that the state owes $1,000, $10 million. If it comes out that the other guy has to pay the state the thousands or the millions. If it means that that guy, because he has to pay $500,000, is going to go bankrupt, his kids can't get an education, he might end up being homeless. All these results, they don't bother me in the slightest, they don't influence me in the slightest, because intellect is an objective study, by definition. Intellect doesn't relate to me. Intellect is the study of how things are, or what things are. 
not what things are to me. Emotion is what things are to me. It's a great definition, by the way. Intellect is what things are. Emotion is what things are to me. Intellect is objective. Emotion is subjective. It's the same in Torah. We could open up a Talmud. Those of you who have had the chance to see a complex page of Talmud will know that it could be talking about very human issues. Really, a fight between husband and wife. Intellect is what things are. Emotions are what things are to me. Yes. It's a, it, it captures it greatly because that's, that's, that's the idea. You can study a, the, com, the most complex pages of Talmud and walk away and eat your lunch. There's like, with no problem. With zero problem. The second, the second that influences you, once it enters the emotional domain, now we're in a different place. In other words, if I were to study a legal case because my company is about to sue another company and I need to know what it is that's right and where my, where my case is going and I'm affected emotionally, I'm very subjective. And I'm gonna find where it is that the... You're wrong, you're very objective. No, in, in, right, a, you're very subjective. in, in, you're, in you're emotion, you're subjective. You. Emotion is subjective, yeah. You, 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 you have an emotional investment into no, the no. case. No, where, where, where it affects... Right, no, yeah, once, yeah, it, once, he's, once he's, you're a party... Yeah, once you're a party to the lawsuit, you don't... It's his pocket that's affected, in other words. Yeah, and, and now the result is really... It, it has a big effect on you. If the result is the, the payment needs to go, then I'm going to start feeling the anger, the fear, the awe. If it's going to go for me, I'm feeling the greatness, the happiness, the pride. Right. It's why in, in the Tanya, if those, are, those who actually got a chance to study the chapter inside, it's why the Alter Rebbe calls the intellectual capacities, he calls them mothers. And the emotional capacities, he calls them doubles. It's a strange word, doubles. And the explanation is because, well, mothers are for a different reason because they birth emotions, but the, different, the reason why only the seven emotional capacities are called doubles is because it's only in the emotional domain where there's two dimensions. As long as you're in intellectual domain, domain everything is one-dimensional. Huh? Yeah, in, in the sense of, no matter which way it goes, it's all the way it's, it's all the way it is. It's, it doesn't hit me in any way. It's all the pursuit of knowledge, the pursuit of understanding. It remains one dimensional. Only once it enters the heart is where the doubles come in. In other words, there's two sides to the coin. There's how I'll feel if it goes this way, how I'll feel if it goes that way. Because at their core, intellect is objective and emotion is subjective. And the reason, just parenthetically, because I mentioned it before, the reason why it's called mothers is because you can only have, you can only have feelings if you have intellect. Intellect births feelings. The learning process is what brings um, the emotive response. By the way, just as an aside, because I like to tie it into the human, the human condition, th there, there is a downside of the... Uh, of the emotional subjectivity. See, we're, many times we're prone to think it's the good part, it's where it relates to me, it's where it becomes relevant, it's where it becomes real. The downside is, and here's another great line, emotions are a reflection of myself, not a reflection of the truth. Very big idea. Even if I'm studying a concept, the way I'll feel about it, if it's personal, is a reflection of me, not a reflection of it. Only when I'm studying purely for the sake of studying is that where I get the freedom to say I'm pursuing the truth. As long as it is in any way related to me, it now becomes a reflection of me. And that's where we see, unfortunately, a lot of people abusing their emotional capacities. Where people get angry, or people lose control. This is all because the midot have that temperament to be able to, to become very selfish, become very narcissistic. But that's not our chapter, okay? We're not talking about that. Now we're we, we can address that in a later time. It's more psychological. But here, for, you know, we're studying emotions as they're part of the intellectual study, okay? So here we're going to talk about the concepts. Intellectual is objective. Emotional is, um, is subjective. Let me, let me say it another way through a story. In the times of old, See, today we're gifted that we're educated. People have the, the great gift. We don't even appreciate it sometimes of education. 
how much we know and how much we understand. In the olden times, if you were, if you were allowed the gift of study, you were lucky. Most people, as soon as you turn 12 or 13, your father brought you out to the forest, to the fields, to the farms, and get those potatoes. There it is. Pick those potatoes, cut down the trees. Those are the kids we have nowadays. We send them out to the fields at 12 years old. Right. See, see yeah, some, some people would like to see us go back to those days, right? Ellie sure. What? Stuck on the couch. Well, of course. There's, 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 yeah. This is this is the other side of it, but. The idea was that uh, education wasn't always an option. And so what would happen was you would end up, even for Jews, yeah, even the people of the book, which is amazing, even the people of the book where we talk about you know, how, how we, we had so much devotion to education, and we did, we kept the flame going, but it didn't always reach the masses, just because just of the way the life worked. It wasn't always that opportunity. And the unique father who himself did not get an education but wished to pass it on to his children. He wanted to give his children that gift. He would sometimes hire what's called a melamed. In Hebrew, a teacher. You'd bring a guy out from the big city. You'd hire him for six months. The guy would have to leave his family for six months. He'd come out to teach you between Rosh Hashanah and Pesach. He'd sit with your kids day and night, teach them what they could. Then you'd give him the paycheck. He'd go home for Pesach, make the Seder, come back, go through the summer till the holidays again. And this was the way people lived for those guys. But the fathers, they were completely illiterate. They, they couldn't read, they couldn't write. They, they had no idea. And they just hoped that their sons would get the gift of Torah. And the story told by the earlier Chabad Rebbe's, but the Rebbe had a particular uh, place in his heart for the story. The story goes where one day, the Melamed is teaching the villager's sons. They call him the Yishuvnik. The word for it in, in Hebrew or Yiddish. And the Yeshuvnik has the Malamed over at his house, and uh, a letter arrives. A letter arrives in the mail. It's addressed to Mr. Villager. At least his name he could read. He knew it's a letter for him, but he can't read the letter. And so he was lucky to have the teacher in, in the house. He says, Look, could you, it's obviously important, could you read this for me and tell me what it is that the letter says? He says, Sure opens up the envelope, takes out the letter, and begins to read, Dear Chaim, this is your uncle from the big city of Moscow. I'm calling and I'm writing on you to inform you that your father just died. And uh, this is, he's been buried, da-da-da-da-da, and the whole detail of how it worked. The second the teacher finished reading the letter, the villager screamed in pain and fainted. And after he was revived, the teacher went over to the villager and said, I don't understand. You don't know how to read. I understood the contents of the letter far better than you did. How come I didn't faint? How come I didn't have any, any reaction? And the Yishuvnik said, It's my father, not yours. I'm connected. You may have a very, very good intellectual grasp of the letters and how they fit together to form words and sentences, but it's the content that I'm connected to. And so in that way, we see a great way to define the difference between the intellect and the emotions. You see, the mind is the tool that allows us to discover ideas and truths, but it's only the heart, it's only the feeling that allows us to personalize those discoveries. Without the mind, we could never reach the places that society has reached. Imagine the discoveries that people have made on the macro level and the micro level. It doesn't matter which level. The small things in life, the huge things in life, this is the mind. But to personalize it and to make it relevant, this is the heart. The mind, knows how to negotiate. The mind is what allows one of the students to ask a question. The mind is what allows the teacher to give the answer. The mind is what allows for any type of, any type of discovery. But it's only the heart that makes it real. I know I'm saying a lot of good uh, short lines tonight, but these are, these are, they, they, they capture it. Mind finds the truth. Heart makes it relevant. See, these are all the differences that they, they all 
They all go hand in hand. They all go hand in hand. Intellect is outside of you. Emotions is the way it's in you. It's the way you experience it. And what the Alter Rebbe basically seeks to say, if we could just look at the chapter from a bird's eye view, is that it's this process that's going to allow the essence of the soul, that raw infinity which couldn't have relationship, that will now allow it to achieve relationship. First, to discover what things are. Just like, a, it's just, I guess in a way, it's like a baby's experience. Babies spend the major part of the first part of their life discovering things, simply discovering things. Touch, feel, see, hear. It's just what things are before they can begin to process what things are to me. I believe in it, even in our current understanding of the way biologically things work. It takes time for the children to assume their own identity till they understand that they are themselves and a being that's in the world. First, it's just the world. Then it's, there's a me world there. And so in the soul, it's the same thing. A piece of God, infinity, but now when it's dressed up with these tools, Hashem gives it the emotional capacity and the intellectual capacity, now a chain reaction is, is formed which can then create relationship to the outside. But although the Alter Rebbe does communicate the general two modalities in, 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 the human, in the human soul, the intellectual and the emotional, much of chapter three is focused on the intellectual. Those of you who had a chance to read the chapter, you, you've seen it, it's a big, that, that's a big focus. In the beginning, the first seven lines, he talks about both. But then he goes on and elaborates mostly on the intellectual. And uh, like everything in Tanya, we're going to get a chance to explore this more further. The intellectual uh, process is going to come up again in chapter 16 and many more times. But uh, for now, we're going to give it, the Alter Rebbe gives us a little summary. We're also going to give a little summary so we can walk away at least with the basic ideas. Many of us, I would venture to say all of us, have at some point or other been involved in a learning process. Whether it's learning information, and if that's in school, you're literally, or you're literally studying a concept, or a learning experience. You're going through a story, and it's, you're learning the lessons as the things come along. Anybody here has written before? Yeah, written. Creative writing, yeah, articles or something. Okay, a paper, emails. a report, emails. Well, you know what? It, it, it's, it's a, maybe, you know what? It, it, it could be... Huh? Yeah, emails. Yeah, and, and, and you know what? People, people can relate to it in emails too. I, I, I think it's true. Yeah, anybody who's been involved in the learning process or the writing process knows the concept of being stuck. What do you call a place full of writers? Writer's block. Okay, the writer's block. Everybody knows writer's block. This is anybody who's written anything, and this is true even of emails. I, I agree. You get writer's block sometimes. You're trying to word it just right so that you can do the pitch, so that you can get the raise, so that you can give in the report properly in college. If whatever it is, whatever it is, you're writing the thing, and it just comes. The ideas are not going. The sentences are not coming together, or you just can't figure out what that idea is going to be. Or if it's learning, this is the flip side of it. This happens in yeshivas, this, that's my experience, um, but I'm, I'm sure it happens in other intellectual pursuits as well, when you're studying something from a text and you're really analyzing it and you come up against the question and it simply is not allowing you to go further. You, you just don't get it. You come up against a wall and you're really trying and you know that the key is here because as soon as you can get past this, that paper is going to come out. That email is going to be sent slick, just like it needs to be. And you're at that moment where it's just not going. It occupies you. If you've been in this situation over a long period of time, some people go through it just for a couple of minutes and then it comes, but some people, uh, it, takes, it can take a while. And you know that it occupies you. This dilemma occupies you. You're in the car, you're driving home, you're thinking about it. You're trying to, you put your kids to bed, you're going to sleep, it's on your mind. And then in the morning, you're jogging, and it's completely off of your mind, and this flash comes to you. Boom, just something comes to you, and you know you have it. It's right there. 
you, you could see it. There's, there's brightness, there's beauty, there's relief, there's, there's everything. And, uh, or in the yeshiva hall, you're with your study partner, you say, look, I need a couple of minutes. You're thinking about it, it's not going, it's occupying your mind. You go to lunch, you're eating the burger, and boom, the flash. And, and right there, you, you, could, you really have clarity. And your friend who's sitting next to you watching this going on, he says, what, what's up? I, I have it. I have the email. I have the paper. I have the Gemara clear. What is it? Tell it to me. Explain. I can't. I can't explain it to you. I can't articulate it. There's that stage where it just, the Alter actually calls it a flash of lightning. Baraka Mavrik. It's just, a, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a revelation. It's a moment of revelation. And it hasn't filtered down yet. You really can't bring it out. Many people will write down in that moment. They'll write down the, you know, the four or five words that come to their mind because sometimes what happens is if you, if you don't hold on to it, it slips away. Uh-huh. And then when you're back at it two hours later, you just can't, you're, you can't find it. You know, you're, you're, you're back to that starting point. You're back to square one. But, but everything is there. The point and everything you need has been revealed to you. Then, those who successfully manage to, to hold on to it, to keep it, to filter it, to channel it, are able to find the words and they come up with the sentences, they come up with the, it starts to flow, things coming together, the idea. And then, the next day when your friend comes over to you and says, hey, you were thinking over lunch, I could see your, your wheels turning. What was it that you came up with? Well, let me tell you, it's like this. And you give him the whole spiel and you see how every detail gets answered, the puzzle comes together. It's an intellectual mansion. You've literally built a palace of, of an idea. This is Chachma and Bina. This is the two stages of the intellectual process, the flash and the dissection. The conception of the idea and the comprehension. The cognition and the recognition. I'm using many adjectives because again, the poor vocabulary in English just doesn't do it justice to give it one word. But those are the two stages of every, every learning process. And, you know, many times we don't like to, we, we, we stop here because this sounds great. But if we explore it a little further, I want to give you the underpinnings of what's going on here. And this is something fascinating from Hasidus. Not in the Tanya, but it's, it's just interpretation from other discourses. The Rebbe in 1989 once gave a talk trying to explain this concept. And he said it's important sometimes to start from very, very physical analogies so that people can appreciate how an idea is being built up. So I'm going to follow in the same way. Whenever there are two entities that are trying to merge, one has to be dominant. Or there's a compromise. So in other words, I'm sitting on a chair. If I wanted this chair to be in the place of this table, one of two things has got to happen. Either I move away the table and I bring in the chair, or the table stays put and the chair can't come in. Or we cut the table in half, we cut the chair in half, we put them together and they're each occupying half of the space, but even there, each one's got its own space. That's very, very physical. In physical objects, two things can never occupy the same space. Let's rise a little level. Two people want to relate. Two ideas want to relate. Two entities of any spiritual kind want to relate. And they're in the battle for who wins. They're in the battle for who's in control. Who is the dominant force? Who's going to be ruling? There's always one that's going to be more dominant than the other. It's just the, it's, it's the nature of things. And the question is, who will be dominant? That's, that's the only question. Or they reach a compromise, and then both can have a shared part of the court. When you're really pursuing truth in learning, or creativity in writing, when you're really after that journey, there's you, there's me, and there's what the Hasidus calls the muskal, the idea that's outside of me that I'm trying to connect with. 
There's that key that I'm trying to access, that chest that I'm trying to open, but that's outside of me. That flash moment, that moment of chachma, that moment of I got it, the idea is beckoning you to a challenge. Who's going to win? Who's going to be dominant in this moment? Are you going to let go of yourself and allow me, the idea, to take over so that you can be engulfed and embraced in the grasp of the idea and then it will ultimately filter down? Or are you going to keep to yourself and not allow the newness to come in? You're not going to create that vacuum. You're not going to suspend or relinquish the things you know. And you won't allow the new truths to come in. If you don't, you'll never access new truth. This is true of any idea. If you want to have a new idea come into your brain, you need to let go of the things that make you, you. Preconceived notions, judgmentalism, all these things, they have to be put to the side if you are to allow a new truth to take you over. After you absorb it, take all the time in the world to dissect it. No problem. See how it matches your previous understandings. See how it fits with other things you know. But in the moment, if you are to truly experience that chachma, I'll just call it, because that's what the Alter Rebbe calls it. If you want to experience that chachma, you have to suspend your own entity. And that's what happens in that moment. That's why many times people will tell you when they have their best creative moments, when they weren't thinking about it. Or when they completely gave up. Right? When they said, I'm done. This article's not coming out. I'm finished. It's in those moments that the inspiration came. The moment you created the vacuum is when Hashem sends in the new thing. You have to suspend your identity. That's a better way to say it. You have to suspend your identity. And that's, it's, it's huge, those words, to suspend your identity. But you really well, have your to. Earth, your earthly identity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in other words, you're, you're, you're egotistical, you're, you're, yourself. But your neshama identity. No. Your neshama is your neshama's what's tapping into that. Your neshama is tapping into that new truth. And, uh, but again, that, 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 that physicality that you have to suspend, that's part of the animal piece. Well, it, it, see here... It's somewhat of a narcissistic... Uh, yeah. Well, okay. That, that, that's if you wanted to really zoom in. But in, in the basic concept that exists even on the godly level, we can divide levels and say, even the godliness has a self. The self that, that's examining the truth. The self that's examining the truth has to let go and allow the new idea to come in. Once you're done and allow, it to, and, and allow it in, then the idea can become subordinate to you and that's the way it should be, by the way. The way it should be is that the next stage is now you're taking it into yourself. Now I gotta, right? Because even if you get that idea for the beautiful article, you still have to go ahead and write it. Yeah. You still have to go ahead and make those paragraphs happen. That's Bina. That's where once the flash is in, you can... You can dissect it, you can articulate it, you can put the blocks together and build that beautiful house of whatever it is you're building. That's why the Alter Rebbe says, in this chapter actually, that's in, this is in the Tanya, he says, Chachma is a, con- is a contraction of two words. Koach, Ma. Koach, the power, Ma, of whatness or nothingness. It's the power to create a vacuum. So in order to get that initial, initial uh, effect, the initial boost, you have to have been able to create nothingness. The light bulb. The light bulb. The Barak HaMavrik, that flash, that... that, that uh, what is Koachma? Koachma means the power, power of what? Of nothingness. Nothing. Yeah, of, of being nothing. It's why Moshe Rabbeinu in the Torah, this is the first source for this, Moshe Rabbeinu says when uh, the Jewish people complained about water the first time in the desert, they said, v'nachnu mao, and, and, and what are we that you're complaining against us? But Hasidus says, not what are we, we are what? In other words, we are nothing. We are simply the conduit for Hashem's energy. Bitul, self-abnegation. And so the idea of Chochmah is that power that allows a person to suspend himself for the truth to come in and take him over. Bina is the next stage. It comes in, it's there, now you make what it is, what it is. It's, it, 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 you know, it, it's why kids are so wise. You yeah. see kids sometimes, they just, sometimes they just say the most brilliant things. 
they have the natural humility that allows them to just experience things without treating it critically, right? We hear a lecture from anybody, right away we're thinking, well, this is his past life experience, he comes from this background, why is he saying it, this is how it comes in, and that's how it fits, and ba da ba da ba da before you know it, we can't hear anything objectively. But kids, they have that, they're, they're, they're just tuned in. It's not something that we cause, there's no causality to it, it just happens, right? Usually, I mean, for, for Chochmah, sometimes you do have to, you know, actively tell yourself, I'm going to leave this. But the, the effect will come automatically, yeah. The flash comes automatically. Nothing you can do to make that flash. In other words, does it give you a roadmap of how to go there? No. Not, not in this chapter. There's no roadmap. There's no roadmap of how to get there. But we all know it. I mean, this is, this is life. I mean, who hasn't experienced around the table? At least once. That, that idea of entering a vacuum where there's just nothing or you're completely distracted, it's another option, and then the, uh, the revelation comes. It's, it's just there. You know, the, the, the beauty of this is ties to the, what I said before about the difference between experience and communication. Not everybody gets to discern the different stages, okay? Sometimes when we're writing or when we're learning, these things just happen in one, in one split go. We have a flash and it comes right down and we can say it and the whole thing is solved. Chachma and Bina, they work in partnership. The Zohar calls them train rein delamit parshin, two friends that never separate because they always go hand in hand. Sooner than later, your Chachma will filter into your Bina. A Sefer Yitzira, the earliest Kabbalistic work that we have, says, Havein bechachma bechakein bebina. Understanding exists in wisdom. Wisdom exists in understanding. They're interconnected, interrelated. We're just... The capability of the human mind is that we can analyze everything and split it up and we can say, this is Chachma, this is Bina, this is Flash, this is Dissection, this is Revelation, this is Articulation. But, but we, we, uh, when we describe it, it becomes that much more rich. Because now, I'm certain the next time that each of us will experience a Chachma Bina moment, we'll be able to label it. We'll be actively aware. That's where it is. You know, If, if I could put a bow on it. Chachma is beyond you. Yeah. Bina is within you. So it kind of ties into the intellectual emotional thing. Kind of. But it's all within the study. See, it's the study the way it's beyond you and you're submitting to it. It's the study the way it's within you and you're overshadowing um, the idea. Another metaphor for this, same idea, but I'm just giving different, you know, I'm going to reframe it is what I mentioned before, seeing and hearing. See, the difference between me going to visit an art museum and, and looking at the painting, let's just say I did that, I looked at a beautiful painting in an art museum, versus you went to the art museum, came back to me, and began to give me the description, and let's say you were really accurate, okay, we're not talking about a guy who was trees and who was flowers and the sun, no, no, we're talking a guy who knows art, and so he can give me the details of how exactly the coloring and the shading and the element that went into it and how everything reflected and all the patterns and all the colors and the whole thing. The difference will be that when I went to see the painting, my relationship with the painting begins with the painting overwhelming me. I know we don't think in these terms all the time, but it's important to see it that way. When you see something, the object immediately over, overtakes you. It marks itself, it imprints itself on your identity. Now you can go and examine it. Right? In other words, if you see a breathtaking view, it's the view that immediately draw, takes your breath away and then you can start seeing the beauty of how everything came together to create that. That would be a Chochmah-centered experience. Versus if I had you give me the elements of the painting I own the process. I'm processing each detail as it's coming into my head. Then when I see the painting, it's all a reflection of my experience. Oh, that's what he was talking about. Got it. Now I see it. Da 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 da. But it begins with this with, with the hearing. This is another metaphor which is used, sight and audio. The Chachma and Bina are a chain. Like I said before, they're they're both crucial. They're both they're both um, essential. You know, you can't have one without the other. People, by the way, people have different things. 
You know, not everybody experiences Chachma and Bina, but not everybody necessarily is good at Chachma and Bina. You know, I know in my class, we always had the creative guy, right? The guy who, whenever the teacher asked that out-of-the-box mathematical riddle, in 20 seconds he had it. And, uh, but he was terrible at execution, okay? He came up with all the great ideas, but he couldn't put anything into action. He couldn't see detail. He couldn't really, you know, bring it down. And then we had the guys who were terrible at creativity. They couldn't come up with anything to save their lives. But if you give them an idea, boy, can they bring it down. They, they execute it at a, at a tent. There's a, there's a third stage in the intellectual process that's called Das. It's addressed in the end of the chapter. Are you saying the two different people in your class? Oh, no. saying one is good at creativity, one good at execution. So that was showing how some people will have more, Chachma will be more predominant than Bina, and Bina will be more predominant than Chachma and others, but they're both crucial to, to some form or another. So that creative guy, some point in his life, he's going to have to see execution through. Maybe not at, the, not at a 10, but he'll, he'll have that Bina come. Or the guy who has no creativity, there will be some times where he'll create those, those new things. And they're partners. That's why the Zohar calls them two friends. The Zohar calls them two friends that never separate because they really go hand in hand. The third element is dot. What I'm going to do, I'm going to follow the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe skips dot. He leaves it for the end of the chapter. He first talks about the result of an intellectual uh, process. So you've, you've, you've done it. You've had the flash. You've had the bina. You've had the allowance to, to filter it down. And again, the framework in the chapter is godly. So when he talks about the ideas that you're thinking about, he uses godly ideas. He says, for example, the godly soul thinks about the different ways that Hashem's energy relates to the world. Because again, this is about relationship with Hashem. And he uses the Zohar. He borrows three expressions from the Zohar. And we're going to briefly uh, expound on them because they're going to get treated. Ready? Chapter 48, 49, and 51. Those are going to be the, the, the three places where we're going to get these. But we're going to just briefly, okay? Briefly touch on them, and, we're, and then in 10 years when we get there, we'll... When the pandemic's done. When the pandemic's done. But he borrows three terms from the Zohar. Memale kol almin, Hashem fills the worlds. So, we thought this was today. Soviv kol almin, Hashem surrounds the worlds. And kula kamei kela chashiv. Everything in front of him is considered nothing. So Hashem fills the worlds, Hashem surrounds the worlds, and everything in front of Hashem is considered nothing. These are the, the, the examples that the Alter Rebbe brings, right? When was the last time we thought about this? We're thinking about our steaks and our hamburgers. But uh, the Alter Rebbe's divine soul is thinking about God. And he's analyzing the different ways that Hashem relates to him. So let me just give it in a framework of an analogy so we can understand it. Which one? Memale kolalmin, soviv kolalmin, kula kamei kelachashiv. Everything in front of him is like nothing. And again, let, let's just distill this. We're gonna we're gonna keep it short, but we're gonna give the, the basics. So I'm trying to teach the chapter, right? Okay, I'm trying to communicate an idea. Somebody's not getting it. Imagine I were to say. You have to get it. That's it. I'm commanding you to get it now. Or the teacher to the student, right? The poor kid. He doesn't get the, the, the piece of chumash. You have to get it now. It doesn't work. It's not only like he can't do what the teacher says. It's impossible. You can't command comprehension. Comprehension is either there or not. If I want an idea to be comprehended by somebody else, I need to adapt to the brain of the person comprehending it. It's just that simple. If I wanted to get it into your head, I have to get into your head. Then I can get an idea into your head. So in the same way, again, this is a far analogy, but in the same way, there's an energy of Hashem that vivifies it. It brings life to everything in the world in a way that it adapts to the specific properties of the existence. In other words, Hashem is not just saying, I command you to be alive. I command you to exist. He's actually giving each being the battery that it needs to assume its own identity. So he gives the table what the table needs. He gives the tree what the tree needs. He gives the water what the water needs. He gives the person what the person needs. So that each can exist in its own unique form. 
Mimale, that's why the Hebrew word for it is filling. Filling in the sense of it fills him up. It doesn't remain outside of him. The relationship is, is complete. One connects with the other. One spiritual fills sense. the other in a spiritual sense. Just like a teacher can fill the mind of the student to the point where the student can understand the idea because the teacher has adapted it by making it kid-friendly, by making it well-understood, by using right vocabulary. So to Hashem has a part of his energy where he says, I want every being to feel me in some way. I want every being to get me in some way. I want every being to be connected to me in some way. And so I'm going to give everybody what they need. The essence. The, but but it's, it's the not essence. The essence. No, it's, it's, it's not the essence. Mamala Kalaman is always referred to as Hashem's outside because it, it's, it's not... Knowledge of it's mimale. It, it fills the world because it gives everything what it needs. Let's examine another relationship. Boss and employee. Boss comes to the employee. It's 8.45. Okay, here's what I need from you today. Ba, 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 ba. 15 emails, 20 customer calls, three investments, check up on the bank, da, 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 da. and this is the ding for the day. Why? says the employee, explain to me, what, what's going on? I don't get why this call has to be made today. I don't understand why the meeting has to be with those two officials that's connected to other guys. I'm thinking we should do it differently. There the boss can say, listen buddy, you're on my payroll, this is what you have to do. You can dictate that kind of relationship because boss and employee by definition doesn't demand adaptation. If anything, the employee has to adapt to the boss. In other words, the boss is coming out there, he's saying what he needs to get done. Any boss that will seek to explain himself to every employee will never make a successful business, that, that, that we know. The boss has the view, he knows what has to get done, he's getting it done. In that way, there's relationship, the boss and the employee are connecting, but in a very transcendent way. The boss is imposing himself onto the employee. This is what's described in the Zohar as Sovev Kolomin. Hashem says, I'm going to impose my energy in a transcendent way on everything in the world. This, by the way, happens equally. Every single creature is connected equally to Soviv Kol Almin because it doesn't adapt. It says everything in the world was equally created by Hashem. Everything in the world has the same relationship, therefore, to Hashem on that level. It's why many times we say, Many times, but not always. But many times it says that Soviv Kalamin is beyond comprehension. Because it's that level of Hashem where he is beyond comprehension. He says, I don't, I, I'm not trying to get you to fit with me. I'm just trying to be the transcendent presence of spirituality in your life. It's just there. But even that's a relationship. Even that's a relationship. The third level which is very rare and almost doesn't have a reflection in this world because in this world, the way it is, everything is a thing and things require a relationship. But maybe some of you have experienced this. I don't think I ever have, but I, I know about it as an idea where you can walk into the presence of somebody or something and completely lose yourself. Completely. Not, this guy gets me, for sure not that. In other words, not that you know, adaptive relationship. Not even the awe of, I better do what this guy says. The complete sense of self-nullification. People have described this to me in the presence of greatness. Great people. Really, really great people. You come before and you're, just, you're, you're speechless. You're at a loss for words. You're not even thinking. You, you lost your thought. You can't even remember what happened. Right? Or it was an incredibly spiritual moment, something that happened in your life where you felt you didn't feel yourself anymore. This is the highest level where Hashem could interact with certain beings in a way that it's kilachashiv, it's considered not, it's considered nothing. And there is an element where Hashem looks at the world that way. He doesn't even, not only does he not try to get into us, he doesn't even try to tell us things, so to speak. In other words, it's the whole thing is, is, is non-existent. The whole thing is nothing. That's a higher or deeper. Um, I, would, I don't want to use the word relationship. It's not a relationship. It's just 
reality or state of divine consciousness. Nothing else matters. Nothing else exists. Yeah. Is that part of the it's an element of Hashem's oneness. Yeah, an element of Hashem's oneness. These are three levels of Hashemliness that a, that a soul can comprehend. It can think about the way Hashem relates to it in a filling of the world's way. It can think about the way Hashem relates to it in the imposing, transcendent way. And then think about the fact that, you know what? In a certain part of God's eyes, I'm actually non-existent. And we're going to examine each of these at further length in 10 years. Yeah. But, <laughs> no, <laughs> in a couple of weeks. Okay, 40, 45 weeks. <laughs> if that makes it any better. But the, the themes will come up again, by the way. These themes are repeated. Yeah. Okay, so the, the, they come up and they're just expounded on in later chapters. Says the Altar, for example, let's take the soul is contemplating any of these above-mentioned things. It's trying to really understand the, the nature of its relationship with Hashem. And then it has a flash. A flash of recognition. Wow, I can see it. I can see how Hashem is filling my energy. Or I can see how Hashem is transcendent. Or I can see the reality of that state where nothing exists before Hashem's presence. Intellect will then give birth to emotion. Just like on the very physical level, when we study a concept as it relates to us, now we have feelings about it. I studied something, I studied the law, I see how it's going to affect my business, now I see it. I read the article, I processed what ha- what's happening in the world, I see how much money I'm going to get, bad news or good news. Or relationship, right, with family. I listened to the doctor, I heard his diagnosis, and now I know what's going to go on with my health, my wife's health, my kid's health, whoever it is. It's a thousand different ways. Intellect breeds emotion. But again, we're focused on the godly soul. He's having a godly experience. And the godly experience is he's thinking about Hashem, he's really delving into it, and he, 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 it, it gives birth to a feeling. Although there are seven experiential emotional attributes, the Alter Rebbe expounds only on two in this chapter, the love and, f- and awe. I don't like the word fear. Fear, is, fear is, is lower. It's not fear of God. You know, we're not afraid of punishment or striking down with lightning. We're talking about awe. It's respect. A, a deep uh, sense of distance. Look how much greater he is than me. It, it inspires awe. And love is the, is the idea of connecting. These are two options of things that can be born from an intellectual process. Ahavat Hashem, Yirat Hashem. Love of Hashem, fear of Hashem. The Alter Rebbe even describes in this chapter what could happen, the ultimate level, what could happen, is Klot HaNefesh, which literally means expiration of the soul or consumption of the soul, where the soul gets completely consumed in what it's feeling, that it loses itself in it and actually one dies. There are characters in the Torah that have experienced this. Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron who died on the first day the Mishkan was inaugurated, Hasidus explained them as having experienced an intense intellectual godly meditation to the point that they expired. They didn't just you know, go to the bar and get drunk. That wasn't the idea. Wine is a reference to deep mystical secrets and they, they had access to great revelations on that day and they simply expired in their intense passion and yearning for Hashem. And the Alter Rebbe says that could happen. So, see, this is, yeah, this is the, the, this is the physical verse, and I'm not taking it out of that context. I, I don't wish to, of course. The, we have a rule that it is, there is Peshat. But on a deeper level, we can appreciate a deeper truth. That Nadav and Avihu were seeking the wrong type of fire. See, they wanted to be consumed and lose their life instead of being consumed and then carrying it back down and bring, making God practical into, the, into this world. That, that's the fire that God did not want. Hashem does not like inspiration without action. One more observation before we go to the conclusion and then we'll, we'll call it a class. The Alter Rebbe, although in Kabbalah, it always says love before fear, love before awe, closeness before, before distance. In this chapter specifically, the Alter Rebbe describes it as first you get an awe, first you get a thirst, and then your heart flickers and inflames and ignites with a deep, intense love to Hashem. 
And I just want to explain the reason for that. It is, it's, it's in the wider context of the chapter. And that is just quickly, because you, usually um, the love that we talk about in this world, the attraction that we talk about in this world, the connection that we talk about in this world, always begins with our ego. The frame of reference is always our ego or our self. Even if it's not selfish, it's always our self. Me finding somebody else, something else that I love and that we connect and that I'm attracted to. So human love always begins with something. That something namely being me and the other thing. Godly love is not that way. To experience a love of Hashem is to actually have your identity metamorphosed into a state where you can appreciate things that are completely beyond yourself. The very definition of loving Hashem is saying, I am in love with that which is beyond myself. See, if I love the chicken, so that's in my realm. It's me loving the chicken and we have a good relationship. Okay? And I eat it. But, uh, right. No, yeah. Or you go out, right? You find the woman. There's a love. But it begins with me. Of course, there's a third entity and there has to be humility. Children. Even children where, the, where there's a very, very, very deep love, even if it's not selfish, it begins with self. There's me and there's the child and we're connected on the account of the creation that, that happened, God's great miracle. When it comes to loving Hashem, there, there must be a state of nothingness before the something. That's why the Alter Rebbe describes the fear, the awe, the distance, which creates your, your, your in a sense, what Hasidus calls the rotting of the seed. You know, before, you, uh, before a seed grows, it has to germinate. Before a seed actually takes root, there's a moment where it disappears. Because only from nothing can emerge a something that that beautiful, that grand, a tree which will continue to reproduce for generations. In order to have a relationship with Hashem, there has to first be the yirah, first the distance, the awe, the feeling of self-abnegation, and then, shuv yitlahev libos, Alter Rebbe says, then your heart ignites with the love because now you've redirected your focus, you've lifted yourself to a higher plane, and so from this new perspective, you can truly achieve a love in the sense of attraction, connection, and closeness with, uh, with Hashem. Just to carry you down. To be a winner, you have to be a loser. We don't, I don't know anybody that, that was born into success. People that made it in life always have a pattern of failure before they, before they take off. Every big inventor first has many, many failed attempts, and then he gets the time when it goes gishmak. And so in the same way, every winner at life has to begin with some form of loss. And this is what Alter Rebbe is telling us. Every love to Hashem has to begin with a fear. And so now we have the, the complete body of what it is that the soul is. We have the intellectual process which, which we examine deeply. By the way, the da'at element which the Alter Rebbe says at the end of the chapter is just the bridge. It's the bridge which allows you to connect yourself to the idea. Intellect is where you're fully pursuing the truth. Emotion is where you're already feeling yourself in it. Da'at is what allows that key of, of connection. The Rebbe used to use the story I said before about the villager who lost his father, also to explain that. That was the bridge. The fact that it was his father was what allowed the pure intellect to carry itself into the emotion. Kids, the, Torah, you know, the, the Talmud says, katan ein lo dat. Children have no dat. Really, they have no knowledge. I know kids that are encyclopedic. They have much more smarts than adults. But yet, they lack that connection. They lack that application. That's why kids are not obligated in mitzvot, because they don't have that maturity. Dot is, is what allows intellect to carry into experience. That's the body of the chapter. I want to get back to the, the point you made in the beginning of the class, and this will conclude. Hasidus makes a very, very deep observation. Animals walk on four legs. Their head, their heart, and their tuchus yeah. is all the same. Yeah. same Humans are vertical. Yeah. Head, heart, tuchus. 
Yeah, but the, the, the idea of head being on top, heart, and then the action parts of the body, the torso and the legs that move. Hasidus says, why is that? Nothing Hashem created is without meaning. There's deep meaning. Animals also have instincts, the way they function, self-gratification, the things that they do. But everything's on one level. Everything is harnessed to the animal's base nature. Human beings, we have intellectual capacities, we have emotional capacities. They're both crucial. We have action-based capacities to do things and get out there. But Hashem made us vertical because the idea, the secret, the recipe, is that the mind needs to control the heart. We need to guide our emotional experiences by choosing the correct intellectual engagements so that we have both in a healthy way but one guides the other. As the Alter Rebbe says later in chapter 12, Moach, Shalit, Al Halev, the brain needs to rule. The, the, the brain needs to rule the heart. And so after we study the intellectual, the emotional, we add in the final piece of Cholent into the mix that it's not just the intellectual capacities and the emotional capacities that make up the soul, it's the combination of the two. It's when they interact in healthy ways and the brain can harness the powers of the heart, use its passion in the right direction that a true divine soul is created. Okay, yeah. Okay, yeah.